Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy is Hot podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Wilde, TV host by day, sweatpant connoisseur by night, and a health and a life coach always. From hashtag to movement, we believe that loving all sides of you is what's healthy, and healthy is hot. Come hang out as we have raw, real conversations with badass individuals living passionate lives, thriving to make their dreams come true, and diving deep into how they got to where they are. And the best part? How health is a key component of all of it. From the highs to the lows, we get into it. From fitness to mental health to aspirational careers, get ready to be inspired. Also, we don't hold back. There might be swearing, there's definitely going to be some laughing. And hopefully you can take something away from these conversations to live your best life, to live your healthiest hot life. Brought to you by Clarence. Are we ready for another inspiring chat? I am so excited to welcome Laura Putnam, author of the award-winning Workplace Wellness That Works. She's also CEO and founder of Motion Infusion, a leading well-being provider. Her work has been covered by pretty much everybody, and now our Healthiest Hot community gets to get in on the magic. So before this, she used to be an urban public high school teacher Uh, an international community organizer, a dancer, a gymnast turned movement builder in the world of health and well-being. Such a well-rounded, multifaceted human. And she's on a mission to get people and organizations in motion. Laura, in addition to all of that, is a frequent keynote speaker and has worked with a range of organizations from Fortune 500s to government agencies to academic institutes and nonprofit. This woman has got so much going on. She's also part of Google Vitality Lab. Didn't even know that was a thing. She teaches at Stanford University in amongst so much other stuff. But today she is with us at Healthy is Hot to share some of her wisdom and her motivation for getting people moving. Let's get into it. Laura, 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 I got to say, learning about what you do and the work you've been doing since 2008, and I'm sure even before you launched Motion Infusion, is so inspiring to me and the whole space that is healthy is hot. I truly believe movement is the most gorgeous form of self-care we could offer ourselves. But honestly, before I read about you and your work, I honestly never really thought about wellness within the workplace. Wellness was always just something I thought of as something you do outside of the workplace, but you're really changing the game in that department. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, (laughs) you know, I think that we all know that wellness is a really good idea and things like getting more movement is a really good idea, but it's really hard to do. You know, we live in a world that's always on. We live in a world that tells us to sit most of the day. I'm sitting right now. I try to stand as much as I can. Um, And we live in a world in which the unhealthy option is a lot easier than the healthy one. And as a result, there are a lot of us who are really, really unhealthy. And that's only been made worse by the pandemic. And so the idea of leveraging every workplace to promote better health and well-being is a really, really good idea. And um, kind of pulling back to my background, I was actually formerly an urban public high school teacher. And so I like to think of workplace, it's kind of like school for adults. 
It's a place where adults spend most of their time, just like kids spend most of their time at school. And just like schools have the opportunity to be really transformative in the lives of young people, the same is true for the workplace. It really is. And I love that you call work like school for adults, because <laughs> I feel like that is even just like a gorgeous mindset for all of us to, to take on. And I'm so curious for you, because you shared that you actually founded Motion Fusion, inspired by your own personal discoveries around the need for motion. So what were those personal discoveries? Were you in a place where you kind of hit a wall with movement? Like what's the personal connection and the driving factor for all of this work that you do? Well, there's really three big things. The first is that, you know, I was a competitive gymnast growing up. I had a stint as a professional dancer. Um, but, you know, movement was my way of being, uh, you know, as a kid. And even in college, I was uh, on the Stanford women's varsity gymnastics team. Um, so nationally competitive gymnast. And, uh, you know, I often think of Martha Graham, who said, if I could say it, I wouldn't have to dance it. So movement was not only a way of staying healthy, but it was really my form of self-expression. And then when I transitioned from college to the workplace, it was a rude awakening around just work. Unfortunately, for most of us entails sitting for most of the day. And so I really had a, a hard time making that adjustment and I know I'm not alone in that. So that was the first big thing is like, how do I kind of do work that's meaningful for me that really pertains to what I studied in undergrad that was international relations? But how do I at the same time stay true to my body and mm -hmm. um, stay true to my need to move? But a couple other things that, that really inspired it. Um, the second big thing was as a teacher, one of the things that I've discovered is that when I brought movement into the classroom environment, it really engaged people in a way, my students in a way that they wouldn't have engaged otherwise. So that's what really led to me thinking about just how much movement helps us to not only be healthier, but be happier and even be smarter. It really activates our brains in ways that we might not expect. And then the final piece was I had a stint as a as a Pilates instructor, that was kind of my last iteration before starting Motion Infusion. And I over and over again would have these conversations with clients of mine in which they, I would say, it's great that you're here, but you really need to be moving the rest of the time. <laughs> because so many of them, they were just, you know, sitting at work for most of the day and, um, and really paying the price because of it. And so often they would tell me, I wish I could, but I just can't while I'm at work. And so that's where I really felt like this call to move to a, a larger stage and, and really start looking for meaningful ways to bring movement and better health and well-being into every workplace. Yeah, I think you're so inspiring because it's one thing to have that realization that you have a need for movement and you also know the benefits on a physical level, but also, you know, on a neurological level with our brain. And I'm sure you know a lot about, you know, the benefits with regards to our mental health as well. So it's one thing to have those realizations and realize you need that as an individual on a day to day. It's a whole other thing, Laura, to take that on an international scale and galvanize businesses, small and large, to look at wellness and movement within the workplace as a pillar that they should deem a priority. I mean, that's a beautiful shift because I know a lot of people who know these things for themselves as a person, but 
you're just like, you're like a superhero without a cape. You're like a superhero with running shoes out there doing the work. When you started doing this work way back in 2008, what was the reception? Because even though that wasn't that long ago, the conversation around mental health, physical health was a very different landscape in 2008 versus now in 2021 when we're recording or 2022. Wow, my years are getting mixed up when we're recording this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, 2008 is a very different conversation from uh, 2000, uh, you know, 2015, for example, when I released my book um, to now post pandemic um, or the post onset of the pandemic. That really changed the conversation in which businesses really got the fact that, oh, yeah, well-being at work, it's not only good for people, but it actually is good for the bottom line and it is essential for building a high-performing team. And without it, we have no business. As we saw, as we all experienced firsthand with the pandemic, that is if you have an unhealthy workforce, business just shuts down. And so, you know, for so long, I have been kind of dragging these leaders and organizations to understanding the business case. And I would show them, I mean, there's so much data out there showing that you give me any metric that matters to your organization, whether it's profitability, productivity, retention, attraction, safety, you name it. And I will show you how it ties to having a happy, healthy workforce. And also just on an intuitive level, I mean, we just all get that, but I think it w- it really changed things uh, the the conversation post uh, onset of the pandemic, and so business for Motion Infusion has just uh, exponentially grown as a result of the pandemic. Um, and but that's also the case for a lot of other wellness and well being providers as well. And so I think that perhaps we might say that this realization, this widespread realization that health and well-being really does matter, not only to the individual, but to the organization is perhaps the silver lining of the pandemic. I love that there's evidence-based methodologies. I love that there's research. I think it's so great that that evidence exists because I know a lot of business owners who are probably like, "Uh uh-uh, no, no, no. Their number one thing is getting the job done. But it's really nice that there is so much research backing how important, you know, workplace wellness movement on a daily basis is because it must make it a little bit easier to tear down those walls and also to help change the narratives that I think a lot of business owners have been telling themselves about how to get people to work and how to get the most out of them. And I think it's such a beautiful direction that we're going in and I really appreciate what you're doing. You share though that you uh, introduce creative solutions to address engagement, behavior change, human performance, and building healthier, happier, more innovative organizations. I'm so curious what those creative solutions are and like what some of your favorites have been to implement. I think my favorite is Go Stealth, which is, you know, the moment you talk about health and wellness, people run away, particularly those high performers. They're like, oh, I don't have time for this. Uh, I'm focused on, quote, more important things. And so you have to reframe the conversation. So it's not only about showing them the data, because again, there is so much data. For example, employees who are thriving are 81% less likely to leave the organization. Or three studies in a row have shown that those companies that invest in comprehensive well-being, they actually outperform other companies on the stock market exchange, on the S&P. You know, it's, you know, so you show them that data. That's one thing. And maybe they'll start to get it. 
But then you go stealth, which is you recast wellness. A, you look for opportunities to integrate concepts around well-being um, apart from standalone wellness programs. So I really encourage organizations to move away from these standalone wellness programs and instead to, to look for meaningful ways to incorporate it into pre-existing initiatives that already have resources allocated toward them and then already deem it as important. So things like leadership development. And so I talk a lot with managers and leaders about how well-being goes hand in hand with be, becoming an effective leader and with building a high-performing team and building a high-performing organization. Or you can incorporate it into every safety training. You know, wellness and safety go hand in hand. If you've been out drinking all night the night before and you're never exercising, you're never eating healthy options, you're uh, constantly in fights with your wife, it's really hard for you to be able to practice safety when you're at work. But I think, you know, another aspect of going stealth is to call it something else. So instead of calling, in addition to incorporating it into those other initiatives, instead of having the standalone wellness programs, because nobody's going to go to the wellness programs, um, the minute you call it a wellness program. but you, Except you and me. I feel like you and me would be like every single opportunity. That right. like, wellness, that Chloe's on her way again. Everybody exactly. else a little bit more scared. Yeah, and people will run away. Um, they're like, oh, those are the healthy people. Let's stay away from them. But, um, you know, you call it something else like energy. So you ask your leaders, do you have the energy that you need to be an effective leader? Or you talk about things like, you know what? It's not actually about FaceTime. It's about net productivity. And so do you want people to really show up at, you know, as their full engaged selves? Or do you want them to you know, be there, but not really, um, which is what happens so often. Uh, so, you know, when you really talk about it more around these things, uh, you know, using different language, um, then often uh, those leaders and those managers will start to advocate for it in a way that they might not have otherwise. Creative, creative, creative. I like that. Just re kind of jigging it in a prettier package that's more palatable for people. You know, I'm sure you see a lot of workplace wellness trends. What are some of the hottest ones you're seeing this year? Well, certainly mental health. I mean, that has taken center stage. We might say that that is the second act of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. All of those measures that we've needed to take to protect our physical health, such as masking up, social distancing, having to take on additional caretaking responsibilities have invariably ex exacted a huge toll on our mental health. So for example, there's a study coming out um, earlier about a year ago showing that rates of depression have tripled for Americans. And I'm sure it's very similar in Canada. I, another big thing that we're really seeing, uh, particularly in the U.S., following the murder of George Floyd and uh, you know all of these other conversations about, around uh, social justice, is that we're starting to ask the question, do you have wellness privilege? So do you, for example, get to show up at work as your full authentic self? Or are you uh, asked to in subtle ways to code switch, for example, and you don't really get to show up at work as your full authentic self? Or 
Does your manager actually support your well-being? Do you have the privilege of a manager who really supports that? Or do you have a manager who sends you late night emails and there's an expectation that you respond to those late night emails? Or do you have the privilege of having access to nature? 100 million Americans, they don't have easy access to decent green spaces. So I would say that those are really two of, of the big trends that I'm seeing. And as far as action steps related to those, are people starting to implement things to, you know, really look at that, especially when it comes to social justice and wellness privilege, which is a term that this is the first time I hear it. And it's, you know, I feel like I just had a light bulb moment being like, well, of course, wellness is definitely not uh, on the equality spectrum. People fall on very extreme ends of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the analogy that I often use is that some of us are lucky enough to be on an up escalator. And so even if we stop for a moment, even if we stop with our own individual pursuit of better health and well-being and advancement in life, um, we're still going up. Whereas others are on a down escalator and sure they can go up that, you know, walk up that down escalator, but we know that it takes a whole lot more effort Mm. to go up a down escalator as opposed to an up escalator. And if you stop for even a moment, you are going down if you're on that down escalator. And so, you know, we have continually framed up wellness as a matter of just, oh, it's easy. All you need to do is take personal responsibility for your health and well-being. When in fact, the evidence suggests that we are more creatures of culture. Um, That is that the context within which we operate, so whether or not we're on that up escalator or down escalator, really shapes the extent to which we can take personal responsibility for our health and well-being. And so wellness privilege is a term that I coined in partnership with a DEI expert, Karen Catlin, author of Better Allies. And what we did is we really, we came up with a checklist of 50 ways that you may or may not have wellness privilege at work. And so asking some of these questions like, you know, do you, uh, you know, are you rarely interrupted when you are at work? Are you rarely ignored? Or um, do you feel confident that you will get credit for your ideas? Or are the people often stealing those? Or do you get equal airtime? I mean, these are all kind of subtle things that have traditionally kind of been under the realm of DEI, but they actually go hand in hand with well-being. And uh, so particularly around emotional and social well-being. I mean, if you're having to come to work and, and kind of being a different person from who you really are, or if you're having to come to work where you're, you literally feel like your boss is killing you, it's really hard to be well. And so that's why we have to start to think more about how we can address the context within which the individual operates. It's time for Chloe's Clarence pick of the week. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I went a little rogue there. I want to talk about one more thing in their sun protection collection because I am very passionate about making sure that you enjoy your summer, fall, winter, spring, whatever season it is that you're listening to this because we need sunscreen and sun protection all year round, friends. But I really want you to enjoy your life without worrying about the sun damaging your skin. Life is too short to be worrying about the sun damaging your skin. So go outside and protect yourself. So I want to talk about the Dry Touch Facial Sunscreen SPF 50+. What I like about this is the word dry. 
all right? When it comes to my face, and I don't know if you can relate, I don't really want like a greasy, wet looking application on my body. No problem. It looks gorgeous when it's shiny and I feel like I'm in like a photo shoot of some sort. But on my face, no, JLo's rocking that glow, but I kind of want to look matte. And I find it, it's actually been really hard to find a sunscreen for my face that is effective, but also doesn't leave me feeling greasy or shiny. And the dry, the dry touch facial sunscreen by Clarins really, really has me kind of very pleasantly surprised. Um, and as well, it doesn't smell like shit. Okay. A lot of sunscreens smell really bad, but Clarins, as you know, by now love including a lot of natural ingredients and in their sunscreen, it's got this like beautiful aromatic smell because there's a blend of tangerine, orange, black currant, peony, and sandalwood. So not only are you protecting yourself, you're also going to smell amazing and brighten your day and also other people's day. Okay. Let's get back to the chat. Let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, wow, I feel like I'm on that down escalator and I'd like to to take action to try to either slow down how fast it's going down or give myself a little bit of a leg up so I can get to the top. What are some early uh, tips and tricks you can share with someone who feels like they're maybe not uh, experiencing wellness privilege? Well, I think first, it's just a big aha for many people. They're like, oh my gosh, I understand now just why it's so hard for me to be healthy and well. I mean, you know, if you're on a down escalator, you're doing, you're working three jobs. Uh, it's really hard to cook a healthy meal every night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's just the reality. So I think that that can be a, a real point of um, solace for people. The second is to just simply start to name those currents, if you will, that are working against you. And um, so, to just change the conversation, the inner dialogue from I'm going to take personal responsibility for my health and well-being to instead say, okay, here are the currents that are working against me. I've got a negative toxic boss. I've, I've got three jobs that I'm working at once. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I work in an environment where I don't feel like I can show up as my full authentic self. I don't have ac- easy access to healthy foods and, and um, places where I can walk. Now, what do I do in response to those currents. And I think just that simple reframe Mm -hmm. can be a really healthy way to respond. And so this really gets back to the, the idea of Viktor Frankl of our, uh, you know, this idea of inner freedom, which is while I may have little or no control over the circumstances in my life, I have infinite power as to how I respond to those circumstances. Therein lies my personal power. That's a first place to start. But The second piece of this whole conversation is that we cannot continue to rely just on the individual to uh, take steps on their own to become their healthiest selves. We have to think about taking collective action. And that's certainly something that we have learned from the pandemic, which is my health matters to you and your health matters to me. And there is no me without you. And the only way forward is together. And so, therefore, if we really care about improving the health and well-being, not just for ourselves, but for all of us, we have to think about this more community by community, workplace by workplace, school by school, classroom by classroom, team by team, family by family. Yeah, I really think we need to level up how much we care about each other. And it does feel like 
you know, the, of course, there's those icky outliers, but it, especially post-pandemic, it does feel like as a collective, we're really starting to see each other more. And I think we really need to because learning that the wellness industry is now the fastest growing industry didn't surprise me, especially post-pandemic. But what did surprise me was learning that life expectancy has actually gone down and lifestyle issues like diabetes, obesity, mental health are getting worse. Yet the wellness industry is just going in an upwards direction. So th- that feels like a huge disconnect, Laura. Like what is happening there? Well, at the heart of this is what I characterize as the knowing and doing gap. Mm. You know, everybody knows what to do. You do the three basics, which is you eat healthy, you get active and you don't smoke. And if we just did that, then collectively we could prevent up to 70 to 90% of the major chronic diseases. We know this. You would be hard-pressed to find any smoker who doesn't know that smoking is bad for them or anyone who doesn't know that it's a good idea to get more exercise or eat healthier foods. And yet, less than 3% of Americans do those three basic things. And that's increasingly becoming an issue around the world. So, for example, uh, the Middle East, um, countries like Kuwait have some of the highest levels of obesity and sedentary behaviors in the world. So this kind of American lifestyle has been exported around the world. So, um, you know, again, this, this, this really paints the picture of just why it's, it's just so, so hard um, to tackle this. And, um, and, and so we have to look at just, you know, how much environment and culture plays a role in our overall, overall health and well-being. Scientists refer to this as so-called obesogenic environments in which the environment itself literally generates obesity and unhealthy lifestyles. And, um, you know, all of this has only, uh, you know, with all the knowledge that we have and with all of the, this unbelievable growth in the wellness industry, people are actually going in the opposite direction and, um, you know, a lot of this, in addition to the fact that it's really hard to close that knowing and doing gap, there are so many barriers that get in the way that have more to do with the environment and the culture. But there's also just this overall, and I think you would agree with this, just these, this, this feeling of despair that we are up against. And, um, and in fact, researchers have called um, this rise in so-called deaths of despair. And um, that has really contributed to a, a, a reduction in life expectancy. Do you believe that it's possible for people to, even if they're up against the wall, even if their environment is not the most health promoting or their situation, like you mentioned, someone working three jobs, it's tough to, must be really challenging to cook healthy. Do you believe that even let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, that's me. Like I, it, I know what to do. I do. I know I'm smart. I'm capable, but it just feels like my environment, my life circumstances are making it really impossible. Is it possible for even those individuals to take steps towards health promoting behaviors, even if they're tiny, even if they're small? Absolutely. I mean, that starts with this idea of finding your inner freedom. And then what are those small things that I can do in response to the circumstances that I might find myself in? So, one of the things that I talk about with movement, for example, is that often people think, oh, gosh, you know, I really don't have time to go for a run today. Um, I don't have I can't afford to go to a soul cycle class, for example. I can't afford to buy a Peloton. But what I can afford to do and what I do have time for are little teeny tiny movements or so-called neat activities. 
non-exercise activity thermogenesis activities. This is all the incidental movement throughout my day. So I can play with my kids a little bit more in the day. And I'm going to move more as a result of it. I can, for example, I'm going to do it right now. I can stand up at my desk. I can stand up every time I take a phone call. I can use these little tiny nudges to just start to move a little bit more. I can move my trash can away from my desk so that every time I need to throw something away, I literally have to stand up and uh, throw it away. I can set an alarm so that uh, to remind myself that I need to, you know, that I can stand up. I can, when I get by my vegetables, I can cut them, clean them, cut them up, put them in clear containers in the refrigerator. So it's that much easier for me to make the healthy choice. So there are a lot of small tweaks that we can make in our own lives that can help us in small but meaningful ways to actually improve our health and well-being. I actually do a lot of those tips you just shared. And I, I do consider myself a pretty healthy person, but even me, someone who prioritizes like mental health and physical well-being, a number one priority, even I need all kinds of reminders, like for drinking water, water, is something I struggle with. I love coffee, love matcha, but I need water. And so I set an hourly alarm, an hourly reminder for me to drink more water. And then I'm using the bathroom more, which means I'm getting more steps in. And it's all these tiny little life hacks where you can sneakily invite more healthy habits into your life without, like you said, feeling like you need to buy the top tier new spin bike or spend all this money on boutique fitness. If that's within your comfort, by all means do it. But I do love what you're suggesting, which is inviting more health promoting habits and activities every single day throughout the day, rather than saying, I'm going to carve out 45 minutes a couple times a week, because that's simply not enough. And that leads me to, um, you talk about how we're born to move, told to sit, which is something like you literally just kind of demonstrated was we're doing the sitting down. We do most activities sitting down and yet we're born to move. Yeah. So yeah, born to move. Movement is truly one of the best things we can do for our bodies, our brains, our state of mind, uh, our, you know, just our expression of our full authentic selves. And yet we are sitting more and more and more. We sit more than we sleep at night. <laughs> um, you know, we're sitting more than any other thing. We go from one sitting activity to another. But, uh, you know, again, we frame this up as an individual matter when in fact it really is so much of a collective issue. So think about it. Uh, what's the first thing that somebody generally says when you come into their home or their office? Oh, Have take a seat. seat. Right, exactly. Or, you know, what's the first thing that we're teaching our kids in school before they learn to read, before they learn to write, before they learn their ABCs? Sit and be still. There's a, a great um, image of people going to 24-hour fitness, and um, there's a staircase that they can take, or there's an escalator. <laughs> Everybody's taking the escalator to go work out. So it's just, again, thinking more about meat, less about eat, you know, the, the incidental movement throughout the day, but just how much we're kind of nudged to sit or to be sedentary in terms of how our environments are designed and in terms of what's culturally considered normal. So this is why, in addition to individuals thinking about how do they respond to that and even shifting their mindset. So for example, if I focus on moving for energy benefits as opposed to health benefits, research shows that I'm more likely to continue doing it. Mm. But also that we really start to shift from this idea of self-care to team care and community care. And so how might we, instead of I just have to do as an individual, I move individually, how might we do it 
as a team, for example? How might every manager become more empowered to see themselves as an architect of well-being for their team? Yeah. And I think that's, I think, I, you know what, there's so much that you're saying that's making me have light bulb moments. A, I'm definitely that person that takes the escalator to the gym. I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay. I feel like I just got called out in the best way possible. And now I can't do it again because <laughs> it really goes against the whole purpose of like incorporating movement. And also I really like that with, um, with your work and also in your book, Workplace Wellness That Works, you really talk about emphasizing managers and leaders to help disseminate the information down. Why do you think that's the the correct direction to go when it comes to introducing workplace wellness? Like you say, that works. Well, first of all, when we talk about workplace wellness, really good idea leveraging every workplace to promote better health and well-being. And yet the research repeatedly shows that unlike the field of dreams, if you build it as in a workplace wellness program, they, as in the people that you are trying to reach, they will not necessarily come. And in fact, on average, about 80% of eligible employees, they simply opt out. And so often the typical approach is like, okay, let's invoke our senior leaders and let's get them to say a few encouraging things about wellness. And then we go right away to the employees and we skip the managers in the middle. And so I advocate for so-called middle out movements of well-being and whether or not uh, wellness is part of your job description. If you are a manager, you are in fact uniquely positioned within the workplace to either persuade or dissuade your team members from engaging engaging with their well-being. And in fact, according to longstanding research from Gallup, the manager alone likely accounts for up to 70% of the variance of their team members' engagement with their health and well-being. So for every hour that a manager engages in after-hours email time, that likely translates into an added 20 minutes of after-hours email time for their team members. Or, uh, you know, we know, for example, that people don't leave their jobs by and large. They leave their boss. But did Mm. you know that when it comes to the health of your heart, your boss matters more than your doctor does. So there was a frightening study that came out of Sweden from the Karolinska Institute, finding that if you have a negative boss, that your chances of having a heart attack increase not only today, but 10 years out. And so when we hear people joking about how their boss is killing them, they actually kind of mean it. So not trying to scare any manager who's out there. Um, This is my primary audience, which is managers. Um, But it's really to awaken them to the choice that they can make, which is, am I going to choose to stick my head in the sand and pretend like this wellness and well-being stuff doesn't matter and it has nothing to do with my job at hand? Or am I going to put on my cape and become an agent of change or a multiplier of well-being for my team? And I can do that in three simple ways, which is to do, speak, and create. I model it myself, not about being perfect. I call this, I want to see my boss in spandex phenomenon, but I want to, you know, team members want to see their boss actually making the effort. Speak, talk about it in a meaningful and in an authentic way and including your struggles with it, your own barriers that you face, including talking about your mental health in a way that's real and approachable. And then to create, to create team-based systems that small but important ways help to normalize well-being within the context of the team to really carve out a little oasis of well-being for your team members. So your team members are just a little bit healthier, a little bit happier because of you, their boss, and because of the team that they're on. 
Wow. I mean, managers already have so much on their plate, but I think this needs to be, I think it's imperative, especially with the study you shared about the heart health, that this is something that companies around the world and companies, no matter how small or how big, really, really need to take into account because it's impacting people's health. I honestly can't thank you enough for sharing all of this. I have long looked at wellness as self-care. I am changing my verbiage when it comes to that. And I think one of my biggest takeaways is I'm not a manager. You know, I'm an employee at a massive company and I'm very fortunate to have a, an awesome boss, but I'm going to take it upon myself to try to be an agent of change within my realm of influence at work and abroad. And I think that is I, your like ultimate legacy is that you are... Uh, you're galvanizing people to show up for themselves. Yes. But to show up for their team, for their kids, for their partners, and really just making the world a better place, Laura. I mean, geez, Louise, you're, I'm very, I'm very inspired by you right now. Well, if I can just tell you, you know, certainly managers and leaders have more influence than team members do. But the truth of the matter is that for every single one of us, no matter where we're positioned within the organization, within our communities, within our nation, within the world, the truth of the matter is that our behaviors, our choices never happen in isolation, but rather they create a ripple effect for better or for worse. This is a well-documented phenomenon known as the social contagion effect, meaning that when I choose to invest in my health and well-being, not only do I positively impact my friends, but I also positively impact my friends' friends and even my friends' friends' friends. Wow. So when we reflect back to leaders like John F. Kennedy, who urged us to think not what our country can do for us, but what we can do for our country, for our world. One of the very best things that each of us can do for ourselves, for our friends, for our families, for our coworkers, for our workplaces, for our communities, for our nation, for our world is to begin with ourselves. Oh my gosh, Laura, guys, if you enjoyed this, go check out Laura's book, Workplace Wellness That Works. Go check out Motion Infusion. I also think you're working on a sneaky little something. So we will keep our eyes peeled and I hope we get to connect again. Thank you so much for your expertise, for your time, and also just for spreading the message that wellness is incredibly important. And thank you, Chloe. Well, 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 who else is feeling fired up and inspired after that chat? Yeah, same here. I can't believe I'm saying this, but just like that, another episode of the Healthy is Hot podcast in the books. Once again, I'm your host, Chloe Wild. And look, if you enjoyed this, go ahead and subscribe so you never miss out. Rate and leave us a cute little comment. Follow us on Instagram at Healthy is Hot. And remember, healthy is fucking beautiful. We'll see you next week. Brought to you by Clarence.